less than an hour. Aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind, that word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. Pepsi or Coke? We will be united in our common interest. Perhaps it's fate that today is... January 6th. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution. But from... Jeff Bezos. We're fighting for our right to live. With mom in the basement. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday. But as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night, we will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Insurrection Day. The meatloaf. Hey, Ma. The meatloaf. Hey, Ma. You didn't come to the coup today. Hey, Ma. At the insurrection, we're going to meet over by the thing. What is she even doing back there? <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning. We're not just a podcast about trade. Actually, we are. We are. But we also had a few dad jokes and talked to some cool people along the way. Today's the first episode of 2021, and our 11th overall, we'll be talking to Professor Richard Baldwin, yes, it's that Baldwin, that one, about the revolution hitting global services trade and what it means in particular for my job. We forgot about Artie. But anyway, as we record, it's the 12th day after the Waffle House coup for dummies attempt. My children, and for Rob, that'll be his grandchildren, Grandchildren. maybe great-grandchildren, will ask, where were you when the guy with the horns brought down the USA? Daddy, where were you? And my reply will be, well, they did make a movie out of it, son. It's called Insurrection Day, starring Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum's kids. Get it? No. Independence Day? I don't think Will Smith's going to be in it. Insurrection. And of course, stand by for this week in local news. Now, with very little further ado, let's get into it. Well, we'll start off like we do most of our episodes nowadays by reading off our input from our listeners, otherwise known as the hate mail segment. Hate mail segment. So building on our we told you it's going viral department, our cold open guest from last week got a little bit of a fan mail via WhatsApp from a person who heard him on our podcast. And after this, he's now a believer. That's right. Somebody else, a random guy who's not related to either of us, was listening to the podcast. Was listening to the podcast. Actually, we were... We're doing something. What we're pretty shocked, and we kind of looked the guy up. I mean, I wasn't shocked. I was happy about happy. it. Happy. Sorry, did I say? Yeah, yeah. happy. Yeah. I mean, you're we're in, confident. You're in character, Rob. <laughs> you're like an emotional, self-conscious wreck outside of this podcast studio. Another listener also wrote us to say, somewhat surprised that her daughter visiting from college in North Carolina loved the podcast, mostly the jokes, but also for our keen see superficial insights. So I say thank you. And listen on. 
And that's a generation even younger than Artie. Yeah. And share with all your friends because we know you're on Instagram and TikTok. Keep keep those reviews coming, folks. Write them to trade.splaining at gmail.com. That's right. You'll also find us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And in the review say, I love this it. This podcast was just what podcasting needed. Yeah. A fresh fill in the blank. Take from two guys, white two male dudes, hetero, yes, two exactly. white heterosexual two, men. Two two more dudes. Yeah. <laughs> two dudes in a podcast should have been the name. That's actually the name. Is that on two, the name? Two men in a podcast. We don't have that thing. Name. Hashtag Tom Two Sizemore. microphones. Yeah. It's not Sizemore. Tom Selleck, I'm thinking of. What? Two men and a baby. Steve Gutenberg. No. What? The TV thing? Yeah. Selleck's not in that. He's not? No, Tom Selleck is actually 112 years old. No, he's selling reverse mortgages. He's, is he? Yeah. That's a good business. Is he? So he's out there selling gray products? This is how I know we're in, for, we're in a bubble. Guy. Yeah, he was. Three men and a baby. It's Tom Selleck. Three men and a baby. What You're talking about two and a half men. Oh, sorry. I'm talking about something else. No, no. That's Charlie Sheen. Never mind. Anyway, it's three men and a baby, Steve Gutenberg, Tom Selleck, and the guy from Cheers. Was like also a hundred. Keenan something. No, he was married Kievel. to Whoopi Goldberg. Keevil, Keevan, Keevil. He was married to Whoopi. Go- Ted Danson. Oh, that dude, the guy that was in Frasier. No, the Frasier guy. No, Ted Danson was in Cheers, right? Ted Danson with wolves. That guy. Yeah, <laughs> I've never actually seen an episode of Cheers. I just what? no. Cheers stopped. I think before I was born. Like most things that I reference. <laughs> Well, Artie, it's time to get into our discussion of interesting trade news, but I wonder if anything's happened uh, at all. I don't know. I've been sort of off the grid the last couple of weeks, sort of fasting from social media. Did I? Did we miss anything? Kimye thing? Apparently they're breaking. Yeah, that's true. Actually, no, you're right. So Kanye and Kim Kardashian are splitting up. So yeah. that was pretty big. I don't know how much that'll affect services trade because they do buy a lot of stuff. They are exporting a lot of services trade. Yeah, cultural services. Keeping yeah. up with the Kardashians. Entertainment is on services. DVD box set. Exactly. So I can't really think of much else. There was a thing in Washington. Oh, there was that, the, the coup for dummies. Yeah. We uh-huh. should probably mention. Yeah. May have skipped. There was a thing. Yeah, CNN. I mean, yeah. I mean, I did watch 55 hours of CNN on yeah. that. Chewbacca took over the Capitol. Yes. <laughs> they asked him for an interview. All he said was. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so that happened. There was an insurrection in the U.S. How many people from Staten Island were in that crowd? There was a few. I'm sure there was a few. Guy took his mom to the coup? Take your mom to the coup day. That's what it was? Yeah. <laughs> Take your mom to the coup. Half price. <laughs> so that happened. I think that's... That was we, a thing. We couldn't really do a new podcast episode. That was related. No. Well, it was cross-border trade because they went across state lines. So yeah. technically we can talk about it. I guess we can. We can't really start off the first episode of 2021 without talking about <laughs> January 6th. Which yeah. will forever be known as Insurrection, Insurrection Day. Day. They're not making a starring movie out Will of it. Smith. I actually just drafted the screenplay. It will be starring not Will Smith. Not Will Smith is not. Jeff Goldblum might be in there. I, uh, okay. So, with all that behind us, let's launch into our discussion of interesting developments. Brexit is done now, so perhaps we can stop talking about it. Or not, if you're on <laughs> but Twitter. Wait, but wait. If you're on Twitter, you will not stop talking about why it. Why are all of these rotting shellfish sitting outside Parliament? It's cottage industry, that's why. So I think the reason we're still talking about it, and you'll come back to this, is because it's an interesting test case. So we've said agreements make things easier, they reduce cost, they make uh, transactions cheaper, they benefit everybody. So with the late agreement with the EU, the world was saved. However, we do see why agreements exist. Rates are going up, shortages are developing, 
and paperwork has skyrocketed. So when I talk about shellfish, we've got some exporters from the UK who are thinking of dumping their rotting product in London because they can't get it through to the EU. They didn't prepare well enough for this thing. What we've also seen is the test case for people like us in this business because they've activated, signed, agreed in principle to sign a ton of agreements. Rarely do we see this happening. And even at the end, agreements in countries where we work like Egypt and Ghana. So quite important for preserving trade and, and kind of testing out what a, what a new trade and development policy would look like. So are we still talking about Brexit? Well, I think this is a case of not necessarily saying the quiet part out loud, but having somebody else scream that quiet part out loud to you after the fact. So people thought that people who voted for Brexit, many of them, you know, framed it as a case of getting their sovereignty back, getting control over their 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 laws, regulations, and so on. And in many ways, they did. However, the quiet part that they didn't tell people was that this would come at the cost of frictionless trade with your biggest trading partner. So what you're seeing now is sort of the ramifications. So, you know, you mentioned the haulers becoming more expensive. So they're raising their prices from a euro 50 per kilometer to over 10 as the impact of these new customs hit, right? So the the risks associated with trading into and out of Britain have gone up so much that they're it's become cost prohibitive, right? And that's to say nothing of the rise in paperwork that you're talking about. So things that we actually work with developing countries on alleviating, so lower paperwork at the borders, creating you know, a freer movement of goods and services is actually occurring now in the UK, which we never really thought we would say. Or some people have actually, I should, I should rephrase that. Many people said this actually would occur. And we'll talk about this a little bit later, no commitments on services trade, which is a huge uh, priority or should be a huge priority for the UK. I'm glad you mentioned that because this is where I bring in my sort of Damocles reference. Hang and on. that is what happens to their services trade if this doesn't go well. So the EU is adeptly holding that figurative sword over their head. Of Damocles. Of Damocles. You have to, you want me to explain what? So we're no, I think we all know that one. So we'll come back around to that. Next thing that we wanted to talk about was, and this we're going to be talking with Richard Baldwin in a minute about this, can trade agreements do more for workers? So Richard will talk later about the kinds of pressures that have faced blue-collar workers, manufacturing workers, will now fail, face the rest of us, so those of us who, who are in services jobs. And some of the pressure for sure comes from trade, not all. So Biden administration is saying more worker rights will become a larger part of their uh, focus on trade. And they want to model things on the USMCA, the, the NAFTA successor. They did stuff on labor in terms of rules of origin with Mexico and Canada, which incidentally, trade professionals would say was is incredibly heavy. So can trade agreements do more for workers? Mm. I think it's a, it is a really interesting discussion because we talked in 2020 towards the end in a few of our episodes of how we thought, you know, a new Biden administration would, would look in terms of moving on from a Trump sort of foreign policy and trade policy. And one of the things we said was it'll look different sort of cosmetically, but the essence of it won't change so much. Right, it'll be a, a nicer, softer, more rounded edges version of it. So you're still seeing a focus on domestic priorities, if you will, domestic industries building lower better, chaos. That also, but one thing about this, so Catherine Tai has said, you know, as you mentioned, that they want to make workers a priority. The is incoming USTR. Many free traders are actually not so happy about this. So if you go on Twitter, they are losing their figurative bleep over this. And that is because they think that this is sort of play at the hearts of 
of these domestic workers and in industries that are sort of not coming back. I think one thing that our discussion, I, I would push back on that and say one thing our discussion with Richard Baldwin has highlighted for me is that if you're going to liberalize services and, and trade and things like this and make it easier to get goods, people and ideas across borders, there needs to be some sort of leveling of that. And one way we can do that on a global scale, at least, is through uniform worker and labor rights, for example, so across countries. So this is one way where you may make it easier to have, have a company hire a, a worker in India to do their software editing. However, they will know that that worker in India has the same labor protections as, as the U.S. or any other country. And maybe a comparable kind of wage or a comparable kind of spending power, maybe put it that way. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think it'll be an interesting next four years to see how this plays out. I think you're definitely going to see more of this. I mean, we can, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but the EU-China investment agreement is also one of the big pillars. It's not necessarily an agreement which is lowering trade barriers in the classical sense, That's right. but makes a big point of labor laws and policies and, and standards. And much of that investment is driven by services trade. So we'll, we will talk about that in a minute. Again, sticking with this idea of services and trade and ideas, we are seeing a move toward regulation of speech and data on certain platforms. We saw Twitter and other platforms have closed or frozen accounts of major political figures. Can you think of any examples? Not really. My mind no, drawing a yeah, blank. Nothing. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. Wait. You mean Donald Trump? That guy. That guy. That's the one. In the, in the U.S., a consensus also seems to be developing around repealing this thing called Section 230. It's an old law, but what it did was to indemnify platforms from being liable for anything users put on there. Right. So that, you know, Facebook is not liable when I post a an expletive-laden That George Soros post is going to put a bionic <laughs> chip. You did see my post on that yeah. thing. Okay. And I love this. Now, Poland has come in as the, as the defender of free speech. They're proposing to set up a freedom of speech council, which will hear complaints about people's accounts who've been shut down. There'd be a process that could result in $11 million fines. So Facebook could get fined for shutting down my account after I make this very reasoned post about the bionic chip that Soros has put it's in my It's definitely coming. So why is it relevant to trade? Because increasingly, tr trade is driven by data. It's driven by ideas. It's driven by those kinds of things. And increasingly, platforms are the way the these things are moved around. So if they suddenly become regulated differently in Poland than they are, for instance, in Switzerland or in the US, that may cause this system we see to break down or become more difficult. So how do you see this? I, I think you're, you've already seen this with, to give you a recent example, uh, WhatsApp. So WhatsApp recently came out with a new privacy policy and, and the way they're going to be regulating your data and, and using your data, actually. So my first reaction was to freak out and then, you know, mellow out a little bit, realizing that all my data is already online. So they're already probably I already sold things. it. So, yeah, yeah, I already sold it for free for the for the benefit <laughs> of getting to you know, post angry tweets at my uncle. Yes. <laughs> also has value. But also share cat photos. Because it's worth it in the end. Why not make them billions? Other people's cat photos. So, but I think we're already seeing this with GDPR. So this has already happened. So a bifurcation of, of, of standards across different economic blocks. So in the US, you don't have the protections that GDPR gives you. So I think this is just a continuation of that. In terms of Section 230, within the US, at least, there's an ongoing discussion about this. If you listen to people like Scott Galloway, who's really a proponent of regulating these, even he's talking about things like doing a more nuanced, nuanced version of regulating 230, not necessarily doing away with it, but 
doing it in a way that doesn't hurt the smaller companies. Because Section 230, its purpose is, and it does protect smaller companies from being sued, right? So he's huh. talking a, a, a bit more elegant solution. For example, if your revenue is over a certain amount, then you're liable. I'm wondering if this is not obvious, but Scott Galloway, if you're listening. Come on the podcast. Come on the podcast. I might be getting this wrong. I will subtweet him yes. he can, so he can correct us. <laughs> Okay, moving on from technology, we got to talk about China. Tell me about this, the new agreement. So the EU and China recently agreed terms for this new comprehensive, what they call agreement on investments. So CAI, not to be confused with CIA, which is a different entity. That is different. Slightly different. <laughs> Who came up with that name, by the way? That could be another sponsorship opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that a red dot on your head? <laughs> Whoops. And that's the last time we saw Rob. Anyway, the agreement still needs to be signed, but seems to provide interesting market access for EU firms and an interesting commitment by China on labor rights, environment and other areas. So something we, we talked about a bit earlier, a few minutes ago. Analysts expect it to be signed by 2022 or ratified thereafter. A question many people have in their reaction was, will this really change things? So many people have said, for example, that China has not followed to run other agreements signed in the past. So how will we know that these are enforceable? That's right. So, And it shows the different ways we engage with competitors, partners, however you want to look at it. The EU feels like they want to sign this and engage with China inside the fold. Perhaps the U.S. wants to do it outside. For, you know, remember, TPP was designed to not have China involved, to, to be an alternative and to, to force China to behave differently. So I think, it's, I think it's very interesting in the sense that they anticipate a dispute resolution mechanism, that they're looking, let's say, to the medium term to to open up things for EU investors and to try to dampen some of the things, some of the abuses you mentioned. So forced technology transfer, forced labor even. A lot of critics are skeptical. I tend to think better to engage, better to have agreed mechanisms than to you know, than to just bang the drum. So that we do we do have to see how it works in, in practice. Are we really going to get a piece of Baldwin's action? We will if you stop talking about it. Sorry, go ahead. Stop make acting desperate. I'm getting a little excited. <laughs> so Richard Baldwin is a name that probably does not need too much introduction to many of our listeners. But for those of you who do, Richard is a professor of international economics at the Graduate Institute in Geneva and founder and editor-in-chief of the policy portal VoxEU.org. He also regularly advises governments and international organizations on globalization and trade policy. In 1990-91, he served as a senior staff economist for President George Bush's Council of Economic Advisors, just after having completed his PhD in economics at MIT with Paul Krugman, with whom he's published a lot of articles, and who's a cool guy. It's kind of a humble brag, That's a, but I, I would do the same. I would do the same yeah. thing, yeah. I've got to get my PhD first. <laughs> His, his latest book is called The Globotics Upheaval, Globalization, Robotics, and the Future of Work, which was published in February 2019, which makes me think, what did he know was coming down the pike that the rest of us did? It's a little suspicious. Literally, it's like that exactly Gates. one year before. It's a little bit like that Gates thing on pandemics. Funnily though. enough, I've, I've heard it said by my Other. relatives on Facebook that Bill Gates is actually an investor in the publishing company which published his book. Coincidence? I don't know. And I totally made that up. But moving on, it's it's important to also note that we also did, in fact, not get a signed copy of Richard's book, even, though we, even though we plugged the bejesus out of it. I think there's a, probably a problem with the post. Yeah. COVID. I, we sh you should have done it through Amazon. It's getting here, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into it. 
So, Richard, welcome to Trades Planning. We're glad to have you on board. Let's start by uh, having you tell us a little bit about yourself. What brought you to Geneva? What's the journey been like? You know, for example, how much do you miss Wisconsin on a scale of, I don't know, zero to uh, cheddar cheese? <laughs> well, so let me see. That's a, it's a long story. Tell me. I'm a professor at the Graduate Institute in Geneva, and I've been here since basically forever. The Earth's crust had just recently cooled <laughs> when I arrived here 30 years ago. I came chasing my wife, of course. I, I was a professor with a perfectly good job at the Graduate School of Business in Columbia University. Three top five under my belt while on the way to getting tenure. I was working at the Bush White House in 1990-1991, but we decided to get married and she wanted to move back to Switzerland. And I had, just for uh, safety, applied for a job at the Graduate Institute. And the romance and the job process both took about two years. And so I had a tenured full professorship in Geneva. I was 33. Wanted to get married to a woman who wanted to move back to Switzerland. And I said, okay, this is me. And I go back once in a while. My 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 parents have, are no longer with us, but I would go back occasionally to Madison to, to see that. I grew up there, spent most of my formative years there and kind of like it. I must say America has gotten crazy. We'll, we'll talk about that. But I, I you know, I, I do enjoy going back to the U.S. I don't miss it at all. I mean, I'm completely, you know, into here and the crazier the U.S. gets, the more happy I am living here than there. So, so just kind of building on that. Uh- 2020 is now in the book, so we're happy about that. We're moving on. But over the course of the year, we talk about you know different trends being accelerated and so on. Has it changed your mind or made you think differently about trade or about the work we're doing? Oh, yes, very much so. So last year, I wrote a book called The Globotics Upheaval, where I was talking about automation and globalization of the service sector jobs. And one of the things that I, half of that was what I call telemigration, where working from home when home is abroad, would essentially expose a large number of service sector jobs, office jobs, to international competition for the first time. Now, I was predicting that it would take five or 10 years, but I was talking about, you know, Zoom meetings and uh, Skype calls and, you know, telepresence. And, and all of a sudden, COVID in five months did about 10 years of digital transformation. And that has advanced this idea of the eventual outsourcing and offshoring of service sector jobs enormously. So to me, the big difference was that COVID was a coordinating device. There's not that much new technology that's come. Of course, we've all had to use it. But the key thing was that the digital transformation that was on every corporation's to-do list for the next five years happened in five months in emergency situations. Customers learned how to receive services online. Teams had to learn how to work online. Companies had to set up the infrastructure to keep the data safe, to keep the coordination. And all that happened in eight months. On top of that, a lot of people were fired. And the companies will now have to make a decision of do they hire them back or do they outsource part of their jobs? So I think this COVID forced March digital transformation, will it change the nature of globalization faster than I thought it would before? And do you see, I mean, folks talking outsourcing about also the, you know, the unexpected costs of outsourcing. So, you know, collaboration is more difficult, explaining what you need, trying to connect with people, you know, different time zones and so on, and also just a loss of kind of organic communication. So have we overcome that? Have, have we changed enough for this to be seamless? Well, we've had what you might call a whole period of experimentation 
we've run millions of experiments as to what works online and what doesn't. Sometimes those experiments failed and we wish we were together, other ones it did, but the frontier of what can be done online is most definitely way further out than it was just a year ago. So that's, that's the, the first point. The second point is remote foreign workers are not going to be as good as domestic in-place workers, but they're a whole lot cheaper. And I'm talking like one-tenth the price, maybe one-twentieth of the price. So what do you think is going to happen? What we'll see is at least some task will gradually be replaced in an experimental way. And that will lead to what I believe a gradual embracing of working from home when home's abroad or what I'd like to call telemigration. So we need to get out of the office space business. Not a good investment. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. I did, yeah, I just bought a building. No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're queuing up my book here. The last chapter in the book, I talk about, well, where is this whole thing going to go? And the idea is that the only jobs that will be left are those that can't be done remotely. So you actually have to be there face-to-face and those that can't be done by machine learning trained algorithms or models. So they require really human things. So I think most of the jobs of the future will be very human and very local. Therefore, office space won't go away. And in fact, maybe people will want to live closer. So that's why I I wouldn't invest in it, but I also don't believe this idea that everybody's gonna go bunk off to the the suburbs and, and work from home, because I think those jobs will be subject to offshoring much more so than the ones where you actually have to be face to face. What we're talking about here is is quite interesting, and you you do talk about it in your book. You talk about a services sector transformation starting in the seventies, where you had blue collar workers losing their jobs, and much the same now to automation, I should say, and much the same thing now is happening to white collar jobs. So the first question would be sort of you know where do you see this going in in terms of the pushback, and I guess the second, what does this mean practically speaking for somebody like Rob, who is a middle manager? You know, will he make it to retirement in 10 years? <laughs> we need to, to know. Go. I got 10 years to go, Richard. Come also, on. somebody for somebody like me who's not going to be retiring, should I start applying somewhere else? And, you know, is is, it, mm-hmm. is my job going to be a, as, as a robot technician? Is that going to be my future? So I, I that's why the second title in my book is Upheaval. I And I discuss possible triggers going against the tech companies. I look at previous examples like the battle for Seattle and going back into the, the swing riots. So I, I do think it's possible that it, that it could happen and it could be very disruptive because we are talking about tens of millions of people, way, way more, five, six times more than people work in factories. And the factory transition from factories to offices wasn't that smooth, but there wasn't really too much economic pushback. There was a lot of some protection and things like that. But the move from farms to factories was incredibly disruptive, involving two world wars, a Great Depression, the rise of communism and fascism, the rise of the New Deal economics to to push back against it. So that one was truly traumatic. I hope this one won't be anywhere near as traumatic. But since the people involved are numerous and have very little experience with either globalization or automation, and it's coming very fast, I believe that it's there's a good chance that there will be a big pushback. Now, it's important to note that the way that this is going to look won't be outright unemployment. It's what I'd like to call downgrade unemployment. So people won't be totally out of a job. They'll just go to more precarious jobs, like the journalist. They used to work for newspapers and have contracts. 
Now they're still working as journalists, but it's all freelance. They can't plan a family holiday because they don't know exactly when the next job's coming along. So that's a kind of downgrading of your employment experience that I think will get a lot of people upset. And I think you're starting to see a little bit the pushback against the gig economy. So I think some of that upheaval will come that way. But upheavals are never just one thing. There's, there's going to be something about privacy. You know, why should it be Twitter that decides the president of the United States shouldn't rile up people? Why does that company get to choose? And that's what I predict in the book of a pushback against big tech, which gets wrapped up with the loss of jobs or loss of good jobs. And that, that's, that's, I, I really do think that that is a serious possibility. Can I ask you about one thing? So we, we're talking about trade somehow. And let's say trade is delivered. That's what Bernard Hopeman told us. Trade is delivered on its potential. A lot of people have been brought out of poverty, but that has caused disturbances. And now we talk about inequality, which is right. Is this disruption you're talking about, is that going to help us in terms of inequality? Do you have a sense of what the distribution of this will be? Will developing countries benefit? Sure. So the when all this upheaval I'm talking about is in developed countries, rich countries. Now, the way that, what I like to think about globalization or trade is essentially an issue of arbitrage. Whenever relative price is different, two different countries, some company is going to exploit that difference by buying or making it where it's cheap and selling it where it's not cheap. And the biggest price differences in the world today are wages and salaries. You never see that in goods now. Professor in Philippines earns 120th, doing exactly the same things as I'm doing here in Geneva. Now those price differences cannot exist except because of these great big barriers. Now, when you lower these barriers, you're going to get more opportunity for the most competitive service sector workers in the rich countries, like you guys, believe it or not, you're exporting your skills, your services. You actually survive in an international marketplace, which means you are globally competitive. And as the digital barriers to trade and services come down, you will sell more. However, there's a bunch of people who are not globally competitive in the service sector, whose jobs have been protected by this high barrier, and they will have to find something else to do. The golden rule of globalization is it's more opportunities for the nation's most competitive workers, but just more competition for its least competitive workers. And in rich countries in the past two decades, that led to increase in inequality because it was the people who work with their hands who were being exposed to robots in China, not the people who work with their heads. This is not that way. It's entirely possible that the people who are sweeping and driving the buses in Geneva will not be competing, but people in service jobs will be competing. So I'm not at all sure that the inequality will go the same way in this one, where we're substituting for people who work with their heads, not their hands. In the emerging markets, this is an export opportunity. So deep down, their comparative advantage is based on quality-adjusted low wages. And normally, in the old days, because of digital barriers to trade and services, they had to take their labor services, walk into a factory, make something, put that something on a boat, and then export it. But ultimately, they were being competitive in making something because their wages were low. What this does is just cut out the middleman. They can export their services directly. They can help me clean up my contacts. They can help me arrange my travel once I start traveling again. Or right now, I'm passionate about genealogy. And somebody with a university degree in the Philippines who thinks $5 an hour is a middle-class income, 
would be plenty happy to do my genealogy for five or ten dollars an hour. So for them, it's a big export opportunity. It's interesting you mentioned getting somebody to do your genealogy. I think in your, in your book you talk about using Upwork to to have somebody edit your papers, and my thought immediately went to this podcast. Not to make it about us, but it, you know, it is. So we've actually used the the same thing. We use a different website to do the artwork for this podcast. I don't know where the person was from. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it definitely was not somebody in. Geneva or Zurich or London or, or Berlin. Well, sh- should we be feeling guilty about this? And two, you know, in some way, these people who are doing the graphics design in Europe or in North America, in, in these, the, the global north, broadly speaking, they should probably have a, a reason to be angry, right? I mean, it's not through any fault of their own that they're losing out on, on business. And that's to say nothing of government services, which are being cut more and more each year, right? Right. I mean, this what they could, they're going to feel the burn that people in factories did all over America and all over Europe and all over Japan is that it's just not fair. I was globally competitive. I haven't done anything wrong. You lower the barriers and now it's going to people whose wages are much lower than me. That makes people angry. That has always made people angry in globalization, but it's part of the process. Now, you know, that's that's what, what the government needs to do. And we'll come back to, to, to talking about whether Rob will still have his job before he retires. Ten years, man. Ten but years is all I need. Tune in for part two of this interview to find out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so can you give us some good news? I mean, people, when you talk about these types of things, somebody will always come back in any discussion. Yes, but, you know, creative disruption will create new jobs, jobs that we never heard of, jobs that we never even think would exist today will exist in 5, 10, 20 years. Will that make up for it? Because it seems that these changes are happening at a pace that's much, much faster than anything before in history. So is that too optimistic to think that creative disruption will make up for that? No, I, it, it happened before when we went from the farms to the factories. We eventually got all the jobs we needed. When we went from the factories to the office, we started working, making things that nobody knew they needed, but now they need. And I'm quite sure that we'll go from jo- service sector jobs to shelter service jobs. In other words, jobs which are sheltered from both artificial intelligence and remote intelligence working online. And I believe when you think about it, what will those jobs be like? Those jobs will be things that can't be done by artificial intelligence. And if you look at what can be done, it's the most human task, creativity, empathy, curiosity, managing and motivating, especially large groups of people, those things will be what we do in the jobs that are left. And since online people are humans, they can do anything humans can, it will be jobs that will require face-to-face, that you actually have to be in the room with someone or something in order to keep your jobs. So once we get past this hump, the jobs of the future will be more human. The trouble is, is that the process of job destruction is being driven by digital technology and its explosive pace, but the pace of job creation is being driven by human ingenuity. And in the short run, it's a linear process versus an exponential process. Eventually, the exponential process will hit some diminishing returns and we'll get all the jobs we need. It's a a transition. So I'm a pessimist in the short run and optimist in the long run because of these two different processes. Well, folks, that marks part two of our interview with Richard Baldwin. To catch the rest of our discussion, be sure to tune in for part two in our special bonus episode coming out next Thursday, January 28th, as we talk about the development implications of the Globotics Revolution, how rich countries should prepare for this, and of course, try to sneak in as many kebab references as possible. You know you're waiting for them. Now, to the rest of the episode.
So this brings us to our next segment, Artie. This week in local news, you wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva. And uh, we got a couple of choice ones. Of course, it's the beginning of the new year. And the Swiss government has announced new traffic regulations. You'll want to know this because I know you pilot an automobile. I don't. When you're part of two lines of traffic and they merge into one line of traffic, it's now obligatory to alternate one after the other in an orderly fashion. You could be ticketed if you don't do it. It's the kind of common sense legislation that is needed. <laughs> yes, bipartisan. Yeah. Also, <laughs> newsflash, water is wet. Water is kind of wet, depending on which side you look at it from. Yeah, could be frozen, but it's still wet. Another one that's for me, those folks piling bikes, if you exercise great caution now, you may turn right on red on your bicycle. Like Uncle Ben in Spider-Man said, with great power comes great responsibility. I'm ready to wield that. I'm not saying I used to actually turn right on red, even though it wasn't legal, but maybe I dabbled. Uh, sprinkled in a few, few right turns. Now I'm going to really go with gusto. You were pulled over once, though, right? Yes, indeed, Artie. I ran a few red lights and I was pulled over by the police municipal. I didn't want to talk about that. Yeah. They pulled me over for running red lights. I thought they were going to get me for driving after a couple of schnapps. Schnappelis, as, yeah. as our Swiss yeah, German friends Exactly. Say. So I made it home safely, everybody. Not to worry. Glad. I think we need to end on a controversy. I know you enjoy controversy. Yeah. The Canton of Neuchâtel recently announced they had the highest fir tree in Switzerland. It's a nice one, a healthy 52 meters, 58.2 meters. Wow. Which, for those of you in the States, is, is a lot. I don't know. It's pretty it's high. Don't ask me. I'm confused. <laughs> I don't know what 58 meters is. I don't know what 150 <laughs> feet looks like. I don't know anything. In any case, it's called l'arbre président. It's the president of trees. I feel like Tom Hanks in the terminal. Unfortunately. And, and RTS at the time, the local Swiss news had reported there's only one fir tree taller in Europe. And that is? In your ancestral home, Montenegro. Editors note, it is not my ancestral home. It's actually, my my parents are actually Albanian. Ah. But we ended up in Montenegro because of unforeseen circumstances. There was a thing. Yeah. It's like, do the Native Americans who lived in Madison call it Madison? No. (laughs) No. You just came there. You said, this is Madison. No. I don't think we can. I still like Montenegro. We love you. But, you know. Unfortunately, this was all wrong. That is fake news. Yeah. Uh, the German press said in Argovie, they have a taller fir tree, 62 meters, which is also in U.S. measurement. A lot. Really tall. Big more than 58. Even taller. Yeah. yeah. So the National Center of Competence in Forestry declared it a draw. In fact, and this is really important. I know you're into trees. We've been talking a lot about trees on the podcast. Yeah. The nurse tree is white fir. The nurse chatel tree, white fir. Argovian tree is Douglas fir. <laughs> and the Douglas fir, as you know, is an import from the U.S. where apparently everything is bigger. In Texas. No, size does matter. It's what we've, We started this podcast with the size matters talk and trees, and we're going to start 2021 on that same note. And every subsequent year. Every subsequent episode, if we can. <laughs> size matters, folks. Because you know who doesn't get this award for the tallest tree? The shortest tree. Yeah. Or yeah. even... The middle tree. Yeah. No, the biggest tree. That's it for local news. We're also talking about market size. Or, yeah. Or market capitalization. That's it. Yeah. Like I said. Well, folks, that about wraps up this week's episode. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Richard Baldwin, for joining us to discuss why the future of work is not as bleak as you may think and what we need to do to make sure we get there. 
We hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did. That's right. And also, everybody, don't forget to download this episode if you haven't already. And also make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you catch our next episode coming out in just a few days. Continuing on this theme of digital trade, we'll be speaking with Jiang Fan of the World Economic Forum based in San Francisco. In the meantime, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, Twitter being at Tradesplaining or Instagram Trade.splaining or email us at Trade.splaining at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. And remember, listen responsibly. Listen responsibly.